This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Hemingway, Eichmann, Stranger in a Strange Land, Dylan, Berlin, Bay of Pigs Invasion, Lawrence of Arabia, British Beatlemania, Ole Miss, John Glenn, Liston Beats, Patterson, Pope, Malcolm X. Oh, big one this, very big. Hello again and welcome to episode 94 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that recklessly adopts Billy Joel's hit song as our marching orders to the biggest headlines, heroes, and villains of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. And I'm Tom Fordyce. Tom, how the heck did we get to where we are today? Because Billy thinks it might have something to do with Malcolm X. Where are you on the Malcolm X uh, spectrum? So, Katie, I think I first heard about Malcolm X, as probably quite a few British people my age did, through listening to Public Enemy, through listening to Chuck D and Flavor Flav, Terminator X on the Wheels of Steel. There is a sample from Malcolm X on Bring the Noise, and that was probably my first exposure. And then, because hip-hop was quite the thing in the Hertfordshire Essex borders in the late 80s and early 90s, there is a cover of a KRS one album, which I didn't realise at the time, which directly references a very famous cover of Ebony magazine, which features Malcolm X looking out of a hotel window, carrying a machine gun. How about you growing up in the US of A? Okay, well, it sounds like you had a a fuller picture. I mean, you know, still kind of sketchy, but the actual uh, artifacts were there for you to chew over. In my case... I'm a bit older than you. I lived in America, and all I had as a small child under the age of 10 was just a distant understanding that this very sharp-dressed man, smooth talker, who could captivate a crowd, was dangerous. And I didn't have any facts and figures about that. I didn't know why. I just had an idea that um, he was a threat. And now, obviously, I had somehow absorbed like a sponge white America's consternation about black people having their consciousness raised about the situation at play in the 60s and 70s. So it was with great pleasure and uh, abundant uh, gathering of new knowledge that uh, I learned about Malcolm X as I was preparing for this show. And I'm really looking forward to finding out more. Well, Katie, we are joined by a particularly august guest today, and that is Dr. Peniel Joseph. He holds the Barbara Jordan Chair in Ethics and Political Values at the LBJ School of Public Affairs. He is the author of many books, including The Sword and the Shield, The Revolutionary Lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. He is also the host of the podcast Race and Democracy. Welcome to We Didn't Start the Fire. Dr. Peniel Joseph. Tom, Katie, it's great to be here. Peniel, shall we start for those who may be unfamiliar with Malcolm X beyond his name, beyond his famously debonair looks, start with a very brief description of who this man was and why he is so important in this period of American history. Malcolm X is really the most important black working class leader of the 20th century. Malcolm grew up in Omaha, Nebraska and Lansing, East Lansing, Michigan. He becomes a juvenile delinquent, goes to prison, and in prison undergoes really one of the most remarkable transformations and becomes this organic intellectual who really becomes the primary articulator of a struggle for 
black dignity in the 20th century, not just in the United States, but globally. And that's why he's so important. Peniel, I want to get a sense of the state of play for black people in America at this time, sort of in the 40s and the the 50s, pre-civil rights movement. What was the level in that country of hope versus frustration about African-Americans' place in their country? You know, I would say that when Malcolm is coming of age during the the Great Depression in the Midwest, his father is murdered by white supremacists when he's five years old, six years old, and his mother is sent to a psychiatric institution in Kalamazoo, Michigan, where she spends really most of Malcolm's adult life in that psychiatric institution, starting when Malcolm is at the age of about 14. And so for Malcolm, it's really a desperate situation in the 1930s. He's placed in foster homes. He eventually becomes somebody who's very, very streetwise and worldwise and world weary, becomes somebody who participates in the underground economy, takes drugs, traffics drugs. There's a lot going on with Malcolm. When we think about American society in the 1940s, as Malcolm is coming of age as a teenager and a young man, it's really days of hope and days of violent reaction. And I've used this term, I've coined this term called the heroic period of the civil rights movement. And I look at that as the period from May 17th, 1954 to April 4th, 1968, which is the Brown Supreme Court decision that says school desegregation is unconstitutional. Now, again, it doesn't outlaw school desegregation. It just says it's unconstitutional and different states and local municipalities interpret that decision in different ways. It's not until 1969 with the Charlotte Mecklenburg decision that the Supreme Court actually orders court ordered desegregation starting in 1969. So there's a 15 year period where we see Little Rock and we see these pictures, but virtually nothing happens. Virtually nothing happens. Yeah. All the way up until 1968, which is the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. But in the 1930s and 40s, there is this black freedom struggle happening, you know, both within the US military, also outside of the US military, an anti-colonial struggle with people like W.E.B. Du Bois. Paul Robeson was the most famous man in the world in the 1940s, irrespective of race, who's then blacklisted by the Cold War and through political repression. And this is the famous singer. He's a singer. He's a four-sport varsity athlete at Rutgers, sets all this. He, you know, We think about Jim Thorpe as one of the best athletes of all time. So was Paul Robeson. It's just that on top of being as good as Jim Thorpe was an athlete, Paul Robeson is also one of the greatest singers and and stage theatrical actors who performed in the UK and globally. Mm. Paul Robeson still doesn't get the recognition he deserves as one of the most singular figures the world has ever produced. So anyway, you've got people like Paul Robeson in the 1940s. You've got the Ella Bakers. You've got Marian Anderson. You've got so many different people. So Malcolm is coming of age where there are these huge juxtapositions. On the one hand, you've got somebody like by the 1940s, Ralph Bunch is on his way to becoming the first black Nobel Prize winner. On the other hand, you have massive racial segregation and white violence against black people. I'm thinking about the 1943 white riots in Detroit against black servicemen. And we're thinking about the Zoot Suit riots. Again, these are all white instigated riots against Hispanics in California in the 1940s. So he's coming of age. It's not exactly pre-civil rights, but he's coming of age where 
the group that Tom Brokaw has called the, the so-called greatest generation, and I disagree with Tom Brokaw here. I think the greatest generation were the Americans who fought in the Civil War, especially the Black Americans who became statesmen during the period of Reconstruction. But that greatest generation really turns on its black citizens, right? So even as black people, a million black uh, folks serve in World War II, when they come home, they are lynched. We remember in South Carolina, one serviceman has his eyes blinded by white racists for wearing the uniform of, of America. So that's where Malcolm comes in. And remember, famously, Katie, Malcolm really dodges the draft by telling his draft board, if he's drafted, he's going to collude with the Japanese to murder whites because of the racism he's facing at home. He is very canny and he understands instinctively the anxieties of the people in power and he knows how to manipulate it and how to protect himself. And circling back to his childhood, and you're talking about all of this violence against African-Americans and, of course, the fact that his his father was killed by white supremacists. Uh, Ku Klux Klan firebombed his, his family's house. Is that right? They attack his family's farm in Omaha, Nebraska. They menace the new farm in Lansing, and then his father is going to be thrown in front of a streetcar and really sliced in two. And of course, they try to palm this off as uh, an accident. Yeah, it's not an accident, no. Yeah, he, he was pushed in front of that streetcar. What's interesting to me is his parents were very formative, weren't they, in terms of they were activists in their community, and they also were very geared towards raising their own children's consciousness about their place in the world. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Earl was a Baptist preacher who was an itinerant preacher. Both Earl Earl and Louise were uh, members of the Universal Negro Improvement Association, Marcus Garvey's Black Nationalist Pan-Africanist Organization, which really becomes the largest Black mass movement in world history. Three to five million people are part of that. There are Garveyites in Africa, the Caribbean, Central America, South America, Latin America, the United States, Canada. So it's on multiple continents. And, and Garveyism really is a philosophy of pull yourselves up by the bootstraps or Tom was bringing up some hip hop. <laughs> you know, I'm a Gen Xer too. In the nineties, there was a company called FUBU for us by us. Right. And in a way that's what the Garvey movement is about. Right. When you think about what Malcolm is trying to do, his parents politicize him. Earl was semi-literate. His mother was a writer for UNIA and wrote articles for UNIA. And she's from the Caribbean. His mother was very, very light-skinned. She had a white parent and his father was very, very dark-skinned, right? Malcolm comes out as the lightest of the seven kids that they have, which uh, people don't get when they see the Denzel Washington Malcolm X film, even though it's a brilliant film. Malcolm was um, a red-headed black man with freckles and, um, eyes that were green. He's six foot three. You know, he's unbelievably handsome and charismatic and funny. I mean, one of the things I try to to show in The Sword and the Shield is that Malcolm X, in contrast to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., there's less of a wall between the personal Malcolm X and the public Malcolm X. Malcolm X is funny with a wicked sense of humor in private and in public. And unlike some charismatic figures that you'll see historically, the charisma that Malcolm has 
is a private as well as public charisma. So if you meet up with Malcolm X at the Nation of Islam's restaurant on West 116th Street in Harlem, if he's just having a cup of black coffee, which he does every morning, the charisma that you see on stage is always there and it's embedded in him even when he's still. Really an extraordinary figure because there's other figures who you meet, their charisma is in the doing. But when they're at repose, people might not notice them. That's not Malcolm X. <laughs> Everybody notices uh, who he is, whether he's in action or he's in repose. The turning point in his life appears to come when he's sent to Charleston State Prison for a variety of offences. And his life when he's in there changes forever, partly because he's a voracious reader and partly because one of his brothers introduces him to the Nation of Islam. Yes, yeah, so Malcolm is going to be arrested in 1945, sentenced in 1946 to almost seven years in prison for burglary. And he is going to be in three different prisons, Norfolk State, Charleston and Concord. And it's really at Norfolk, which is an, a correctional institution that is experimenting with having a good library. It's, it's more reminiscent of a college campus than a contemporary prison at the time that he's going to really find his metier, his vocation as an activist. His brother, Wilford, who's his older brother, introduces him to the Nation of Islam. And when we think about the Nation of Islam, the Nation of Islam is one of the many different Black religious organizations that grows out of the Garvey movement and the dissolution of the Garvey movement. So when we think about the Nation of Islam, well, what is it? Well, the Nation of Islam is a group that is founded by W.D. Farad in the 1930s. And Elijah Poole, who is a former sharecropper from Georgia, becomes W.D. Farad's best student and is renamed Elijah Muhammad. And they come up with their own religious interpretations, uh, like all religions, that black people are Afro-Asiatic people, that white people were created by a black scientist named Yakub, and that white people are really genetically predisposed to committing great acts of evil, like colonialism and Native American dispossession, white supremacy against black folks and people of color. Part of what the Nation of Islam also does is talk about black dignity, not citizenship, but dignity. And it's really important here. By dignity, what they mean is that all black people are born with human dignity that should be recognized. But the first group that should recognize it is themselves, right? So the nation really reconnects Malcolm X and his entire family or Malcolm Little and his family with the teachings that they had first imbibed as toddlers from their parents to be proud, to be black, to be self-determined in Lansing, Michigan, in Omaha, Nebraska from Marcus Mosiah Garvey. And so in a, in a lot of ways, Elijah Muhammad becomes a new surrogate father for Malcolm Little, who becomes Malcolm X. Now, all members of the Nation of Islam take on the X surname because the nation argues that because of racial slavery, black people in the United States, their last names are not their own. That argument is factually sound. <laughs> Nobody from West Africa came to the United States with the surname of Johnson 
and Jefferson and Little. That's just impossible, everyone. I just want people to know. It's an impossibility. And so Malcolm really embraces the Nation of Islam as a vehicle to not only uplift himself and let him recognize his own dignity and authority as a human being, but also to uplift the entire Black community initially in the United States, but very quickly globally. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello Fire listeners, it's Tom here. I hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Fire listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com WDSTF, as in, we didn't start the fire. So, that is betterhelp.com WDSTF. Eat stress-free this spring with Factors' delicious ready-to-eat meals. Always fresh and never frozen, each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. So last night I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon and it was absolutely delicious. These are no-fuss, no-mess meals. Factor eliminates the hassle of prepping, cooking or cleaning up. Simply heat and savour the good stuff. With over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks and smoothies, there's plenty of options to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. Plus, you can customise your weekly meals and pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 and use the code WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code WDSTF50 at factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I'm interested in the fact that Malcolm Little, now Malcolm X, goes on a path of taking on the mantle of an orator and a leader. Is that unexpected given his hoodlum past, or is that a natural progression from those qualities that maybe have turned from negative to the positive side? Oh, you know, I think that Malcolm's wayward path is always just a detour. 
you know, I think Malcolm and the family he was from were working class intellectuals and activists and organizers, right? So there's something, even as there's working class, there's something very authentically, organically intellectual about them, maybe even petty bourgeois about them, right? In terms of their habits, their habits of the mind. And so when we think about Malcolm, I think that Malcolm was one of many Black men in the context of post-war America and Black women too, who are searching for their vocations, who are really absolutely limited behind that color curtain of racial discrimination. What Malcolm tries to do is utilize his life story as an example for the Black community, but it's not an example of racial uplift and the politics of respectability. And racial uplift and respectability politics are this idea that if Black people somehow behave normatively according to white standards, they will be rewarded. Malcolm X does something different. And this is why in The Sword and the Shield, I say that Malcolm is Black America's prosecuting attorney who becomes prime minister. Malcolm prosecutes white America for a series of crimes against Black humanity. And he's got such a stunning intellect because his formal education is an eighth grade education, even though he was president of his seventh grade class. It's an eighth grade education. He reads voraciously and, you know, intellectually. And I've read Malcolm's stuff, his own writings. Malcolm doesn't have any ghost writers like presidents do or Dr. King does. You know, he's absolutely brilliant. You could say he's an intellectual savant. You could say he's an autodidact, but there's there's definitely genius there. And what he does is use his own example as an example to both prosecute racism, but also to uplift the black community. And what's interesting about his vision of uplift, he's very critical of the black community, even as he wants uplift. And his critique is this idea that black people have failed to recognize that they are the repository of their own liberation. So that's the last place Malcolm is arguing they're looking because Malcolm has a critique against Dr. King and this idea of citizenship up until really close to the end of his life, because Malcolm believes that citizenship is just the external recognition of human dignity that you already have. And why should black people be laboring to have what is already intrinsically theirs recognized by outside institutions? Obviously, Dr. King's going to have a response, but I'm saying that's what Malcolm really, really believes. And that's why for so long, Malcolm's separatism is uh, misunderstood. Malcolm debates people like James Baldwin and Bayard Rustin. And he says that he would be all for racial integration today if there weren't white mobs attacking black school children trying to enter schools, right? So Malcolm is not a reverse racist or a racial separatist in a conventional manner. Malcolm believes in black dignity. And I agree with Malcolm. Who amongst us would send school children to be attacked by white mobs? Right now in the United States, we realize that Jerry Jones, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, was part of that white mob. And now he's an 80-year-old owner, 
right? And so when we think about the NFL and why are there no black coaches and why is there racial inequality? Well, that's your answer. You've got the owner of the Dallas Cowboys is one of the white thugs, the white mob, the white hoodlums. Because again, the real hoodlums are the white racial segregationists of this period, right? And we've got all the evidence, right? And, and, and somehow we forget that, right? And one of those hoodlums is now the billionaire owner of the Dallas Cowboys. And we wonder why there's racial division and hatred in the United States. It's still just so sinister and entwined within our culture, beautifully articulated and deeply distressing, you know, this whole realization that that we're still struggling with all of this. And speaking of beautifully articulated, there is an abundance of Malcolm X's appearances and speeches all over YouTube. And you can see how his righteous rage and his anger absolutely lights a fire under the audience and and under me. I mean, I I feel like... uh, not to go all Rachel Dolezal here, but, you know, I'm like, yeah, this is really terrible. White devils are doing harm to a whole body of people. But you can see how refreshing and clarifying it was to the listeners out in the street and in the crowd listening to Malcolm X speak because no one had ever dared put it like that before. Everybody was more interested in towing the party line, just as you say, playing nice. Maybe they'll be allowed to progress a little bit by the white patriarchy if they, you know, color within the lines. And you can see why he was considered not only new, exciting, but also dangerous. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, when we go back to something like Little Rock Central High School 1957 is a perfect example where Dr. King sends Eisenhower a telegram thanking him for sending those troops in to escort the Little Rock Nine in September of 1957. Malcolm excoriates the whole event, not because he doesn't want black children to have access to public schools, but Malcolm recognizes in a way that King doesn't. Little Rock is a fiasco. The fact that there's a mob of a thousand white people there and that those children need military escort says all you need to say about the soul of America. So what happened in Little Rock is morally reprehensible and politically indefensible. The only person who's willing to say that and speak truth to power is Malcolm X. And again, I think King is amazing. I write about King. I love King. But he, he's thinking about citizenship at all costs, at all and any cost. And Malcolm does not want a citizenship in the United States at the cost of his own soul, right? And again, what we've done in the United States, but also globally, we've reversed the reality. We've criminalized black people. We criminalized people of color in the UK too. But the real criminals are racist and segregationist. And like Malcolm says, the white racists and segregationists are not just the Klan or these racial terrorist groups. Malcolm is saying it's the it's the US government, it's the police, it's the military, it's law enforcement, it's your local, state, regional elected officials, it's corporate, it's private, it's public, it's religious, right? And so when he's speaking all this truth, a lot of people can't handle that level of truth. And again, in the United States, we we have this assault on truth teaching, the critical race theory hoax that continues deep into the 21st century. So what Malcolm 
elucidated in less than 13 years. He spoke these, what Toni Morrison has called these unspeakable, unspoken truths about American democracy, but also about the white imagination, because Malcolm really pushes back against the lie of American exceptionalism. And American exceptionalism is based on two big lies. The first lie is that Black people are not human beings, and that's how you can have racial slavery and produce the global wealth of the kind of racist capitalism that comes out of the slave trade. The second lie is that the first lie never happened, right? And so Malcolm's able to articulate all of this in a really amazing way that eventually is going to lead him to be kicked out of the nation of Islam, but also lead him to become this global icon of human rights. And so much of the criticism that he laid at the hands, even at Oxford University in December of 1964, pre-Brexit Britain, right? <laughs> he says he's willing to work with anybody who's willing to change the miserable condition on the face of this earth. What he's talking about is the convergence between global capitalism, white supremacy, white racial terror and violence, but also he's saying that indigenous people don't understand their own history, including black people, including brown people, especially their pre-colonial history, which is why Malcolm starts going to Africa as early as 1959. And by 1964, he spends the whole year in Africa, basically. He's in Nigeria, Tanzania, Ghana. He's, he spends the whole year. He's in Egypt. You know, he's got the famous letter where he says, I left my heart in Cairo. This is a truly extraordinary figure who's assassinated at the age of 39. Right. You imagine what somebody like this could have done and the different constituencies he would have brought together. You saw some of those constituencies at Oxford in 1964, but you see them in Cairo. You see them in Dar es Salaam. You see them in Accra, where he's meeting with Kwame Nkrumah. So a truly extraordinary figure. You also see, Peniel, the reaction of the white establishment against him. From the very start, the fact that he is under surveillance by both the FBI and the New York Police Department. I don't know if you can give us an idea of what it would have been like to have been Malcolm in that very febrile period in the early 60s when he's starting to become a national figure. How life must have been for him in the centre of that maelstrom. Oh, it's an exhilarating life, but it's also one where there's a lot of different dangers and highs and lows and juxtapositions. So in certain ways, Malcolm is the first radical black public intellectual of the post-war period. And he's an activist too. And in a way different from Dr. King, Dr. King becomes a radical really only after Malcolm's assassination. In Dr. King's last year, he becomes a revolutionary when he comes out against the Vietnam War and really calls for a global peace movement against white supremacy, which leads to his, his death, his assassination. So no, Malcolm is working really 18 hour days consistently. There are times he's really hospitalized for exhaustion and depression. He's under a death threat from the New York Police Department's Bureau of Special Services, but he's also being watched by the FBI. He's being watched by international surveillance agencies, including the CIA and the State Department, starting in 1959 when he goes to the Middle East for five weeks. And then by 64, he's in Cairo and London. You know, it would be an extraordinary kind of experience because by 1961, Malcolm is the second most sought after college campus speaker. The first is Barry Goldwater. 
the conservative quite the senator from Arizona. And Malcolm X is number two. When you think about the relationship with Barry Goldwater and Malcolm X, remember at Oxford University in 1964, Malcolm is defending for different reasons, Barry Goldwater's statement, extremism in defense of liberty is no vice. Barry Goldwater used that phrase as a defense of white supremacy against the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. Malcolm was using that phrase as a defense of self-defense for racial and economic justice for all people globally, right? So they, they have a very interesting relationship. Yeah, Malcolm is both this rock star and this celebrity who's appearing on radio and television. And, you know, he's speaking at Harvard University, at Yale University. Arthur Schlesinger is getting into screaming matches with, with Malcolm in 1961, uh, who's the house historian. So Malcolm is this extraordinary protean figure whose life is in constant flux. And by 1964, the access that is availed in a raid against them comes to include even the Nation of Islam. Well, let's let's get into that, Peniel, that, that relationship that, that falls apart. It's been a founding part of his second life, if we like. Why does his relationship sour with Nation of Islam and particularly with Elijah Muhammad? It's a very complicated relationship, but the, the simple answer is that Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm X become over time competitors. When he joins the Nation of Islam, it's a startup. It becomes Apple. It becomes IBM, right? Unfortunately for Malcolm, Malcolm was not somebody who was ruthless enough to try and keep the money he raised, the resources he raised, uh, just in case to give himself his own buyout. So in a lot of ways, as they become competitors, and part of the reason why they become competitors is that Malcolm increasingly doesn't listen to Elijah Muhammad increasingly is jaded by Elijah Muhammad. And it's a number of different reasons. Elijah Muhammad and his his own personal behavior and affairs with secretaries and, and children out of wedlock. But it's also where the organization is going. Malcolm wants the organization to be a much more political, race-conscious organization, racial justice-conscious organization than Elijah Muhammad. And the folks who are around Elijah Muhammad are willing to let it be. So when Malcolm says the chickens have come home to roost after Kennedy's assassination, they use that as a pretext to not just silence him, but they don't want Malcolm rocking the boat and they don't want him taking thousands of followers with him and setting up a rival organization. And so there's really a, a sentence of death carried out against Malcolm finally in February of 1965, February 21st, but really as early as December of 1963, there are folks within that organization who are talking about assassinating Malcolm. Yeah, it's effectively a fatwa against Malcolm X. Yes. And also, he becomes uh, so popular, like you say, a rock star figure, that people aren't even aware the other guy is actually the leader of the Nation of Islam. They think it's Malcolm X's gig. Absolutely. he He's the most visible single person until Muhammad Ali becomes part of the Nation of Islam. Malcolm X is the most single visible representative of the Nation of Islam. And that irks Elijah Muhammad and Muhammad's family and the people who are in Chicago who are controlling the finances as well. So you dangled that little breadcrumb. Tell us a story about how Malcolm X and Cassius Clay's paths crossed. Yeah, so Cassius Clay first meets Malcolm X in 1962 
with his brother, Rudy Clay, and they occasionally meet and become friends, but they really solidify that friendship in 1964 when Cassius Clay invites Malcolm X and his family to take a vacation and watch him train. So they're in Miami when Cassius Clay uh, defeats Sonny Liston in a real surprise upset. And really over the next several weeks, they're hanging out. Malcolm X introduces him to the United Nations and his office at the United Nations and different African diplomats. Malcolm sets up Cassius Clay, later Muhammad Ali's first global tour through Africa. And that's a friendship that's going to be thwarted by Elijah Muhammad. Elijah Muhammad is going to name Cassius Clay, give him the name Muhammad Ali, and basically say, you know, as long as you follow me and not Malcolm, things will be cool. Whereas Malcolm had been trying to utilize Clay's official entree into the group as a way to smooth things over with Elijah Muhammad and get back in the good graces with the group. Uh, but by that point, it's really too late. And, and really primarily because the organization was really filled with corruption and he had had blinders on aspects of that corruption. I want to know about his private life. He got together with Betty Shabazz when they were both in Nation of Islam. They had a very strict courtship. There were rules and regulations, no one-on-one dates, and yet they, they managed to court and spark and get together. What was the nature of their marriage? Yeah, you know, when you look at that marriage, that's going to be a seven-year marriage. They get married in 1958. They have four children while Malcolm's alive. Betty's pregnant with twins when he's assassinated. So they eventually have six children, six girls. It's going to be a both loving relationship, but a complicated one, especially because of the fact that Malcolm X, like King, is on the road most of the time. So there's really not the kind of tremendous time that couples get to spend together. I mean, he's on the road you know, 250 days out of the year, you know, sometimes 300 days out of the year. So it's just not a lot of time. So there's going to be tensions there. And there's also going to be tensions with the fact that Malcolm, for most of that marriage, is within the Nation of Islam. He's producing millions of dollars for this organization, yet they're living a very, very, very humble life. Betty was always aware and cognizant of the death threats and the precarity of their lives. And so there was really tension around the fact that there was really no retirement plan for Malcolm. In fact, uh, what happens to Malcolm's family for many years until they're able to really take control of aspects of his legacy, um, and this happened to the King family too, they are in real dire financial straits. But Betty was an intellectual in her own right. She was a nurse. She was somebody who was part of the Muslim girls training program. She taught classes gets a PhD after Malcolm's assassination and becomes a professor. So she's a very interesting and very, very capable figure in her own right and was a political partner to Malcolm as well. Malcolm X's life, Peniel, is one cut heinously short. Take us inside that day, the 21st of February, 1965, in a ballroom in Manhattan. There are 400 people in the audience. Well, now we know, because there's been re-investigations into Malcolm's assassinations, that there's going to be a five-man hit squad sent from the Newark Mosque 
to assassinate Malcolm. But on top of that, there were FBI informants who were part of Malcolm's entourage and serving as bodyguards that day. Malcolm, by this time, has created the Organization of Afro-American Unity and the follow-up of the Muslim Mosque Incorporated that he had created right after leaving. So when we think about the Audubon, I mean, in certain ways, Malcolm's home had just been firebombed a week earlier, and he still went and gave a talk in Detroit. He had been in London just a few weeks before that. He was in um, Smethwick, might have visited Birmingham during that visit. He had been disallowed from entering Paris because French authorities didn't want him assassinated in France. So things are closing in on Malcolm. His close friends wanted him to leave to Africa. They wanted him to escape this assassination. And so in a lot of ways, that day at the Audubon Ballroom in Washington Heights, New York, Malcolm doesn't let his people pat down folks and do the kind of security check. So one of the assassins is able to come in with a shotgun. There's going to be a diversion, a pretext, where two of the assassins are pretending to fight each other so that the main shooter can get to the stage. And really, Malcolm's going to be shot multiple times, but it's the first shot that's really the fatal blow. And when we think about that assassination, there's going to be three people arrested. A couple of them have been exonerated since then. And the real shooter has since passed. But the FBI, the New York Police Department's Bureau of Special Services, and the, the Newark Mosque, all of them were connected to that assassination and the cover-up that followed. And it's really taken decades to really unravel what happened. And in New York, the, the families of the folks who've been exonerated, they've received the settlement financially as well. So it's really a, a very bizarre and distorted and really conspiratorial. We usually think about conspiracy theorists as people who are out there, but there actually are conspiracies at times, right? And so this was absolutely sort of a conspiracy to both assassinate Malcolm X that was coming from the Nation of Islam, but the FBI and the New York Police Department's Bureau of Special Services actually knew that the assassination was coming and did nothing to warn Malcolm. So they aided and abetted his murder, right? It should live in infamy. I think the reverberations, though, of the assassination are plentiful in the sense that the assassination turns Malcolm into this iconic figure whose legacy lives long past his, his life and death. You know, infamously, the New York Times said he was a, a, a talented figure who, who used his talents for evil in, in their oh. editorial after his assassination wow. in February of 1965. So it's really the black community. And, you know, Tom, you, you mentioned at the start hip hop and Chuck D and Public Enemy, who, who really helped resuscitate Malcolm X, the socialists too, George Brightman and the socialists did great work of disseminating Malcolm's last speeches and by any means necessary. And then also black communities kept tapes of Malcolm's ballot or the bullet speech and message to the grassroots speech and other speeches alive. So people were listening to Malcolm X tapes. And then certainly the autobiography of Malcolm X 
is originally supposed to be published by Random House. Random House kills it after his assassination, thinking the book's going to be worthless. It's published instead by Grove Press and goes on to sell more than three million copies and become a staple of autobiography. So in a lot of ways, his assassination, it really amplifies his legacy. And certainly by the time we get to the 1992 Malcolm X film by Spike Lee, that's a very, very important film because Malcolm's legacy had been so contested to have a three-hour film that tried to humanize Malcolm and also show the power, but the background that he's coming from was hugely, hugely important. And since then, you know, Malcolm has appeared on a postage stamp. There's a series called The Godfather of Harlem, where Malcolm is one of the main protagonists with, with Forrest Whitaker. There's the Regina King directed One Night in Miami. And so now, you know, Malcolm X is this commodity who people are trying to figure out in, in many different media forms, sort of the complexity of who he he is and who he was. Peniel, how would Malcolm X's rhetoric and his message be received by Black America today? Is there anyone now who has the ear of African-Americans in the provocative way that he did? Yeah, I would say that it would be the Black Lives Matter movement, really, especially starting in 2013 after the murder of Trayvon Martin in Florida, really stood on the shoulders of Malcolm X um, in many different ways by really being willing to speak truth to power at a time where the country had a black president and to talk about mass incarceration, to talk about racism and racial terror and violence, and to talk about things like abolishing police and abolishing prisons and abolishing punishment, right? And so I would say that the movement for Black Lives has been really, really integral. And in that way, it's been both Black men, but also Black women have been really leaders here in continuing that message. And that movement is global in scope. You know, after 2020 and the murder of George Floyd, we saw all these protests in the UK and in parts of Europe and in Africa and in other places, obviously thousands of protests in the United States, 25 million people in the streets. So I would say that it continues in our own time, but it's not one singular figure like Malcolm. It's a, it's a constellation of figures who really marched and protested and continue to demonstrate under that banner of Black Lives Matter. But certainly even that phrase is very reminiscent of Malcolm and his by any means necessary rhetoric. Dr. Peniel Joseph, it has been both an education and an honor to have you on the podcast today. If people would like to hear more from you, apart from the book and the podcast we have already mentioned, you have a new book out entitled The Third Reconstruction, America's Struggle for Racial Justice in the 21st Century. And you have a TV series coming up. What is this? Oh, yes. Yeah. The Sword and the Shield. Disney Plus is making The Sword and the Shield into an eight episode series called uh, MLKX. So it's going to be an eight parter dramatic series. Um, they've started filming in Atlanta. Yeah, it's coming to Disney Plus hopefully next year. And it's being produced by um, Gina Prince Bythewood and Reggie Rock Bythewood. Gina just directed The Woman King with Viola Davis. Oh, and wow. so we're very excited. Um, about that. Quite a provenance. And so this is looking directly at the interaction between Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr.? 
Absolutely. It's a dual biography, just like the dual biography my book was. So it's really looking at their intersecting and intertwining lives. And in a lot of ways, what's so interesting is King is born January 15th, 1929. Malcolm is born May 19th, 1925. So they could have been each other's older brother and younger brother or cousins. And so they really are generationally matched. And Dr. King, unfortunately, is assassinated when he's 39 years old. Malcolm X is assassinated when he's 39 years old. They're both on the public stage for about 13 years. There's eerie similarities to their political lives and and even some intersection with their their personal lives and ambitions as well. Fascinating. I can't wait to see it. Thank you so much, Peniel. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. Katie, that feels like one of those episodes where we could have quite happily carried on talking for about three or four hours. Oh, my gosh. The uh, counterfactual of what could have and would have happened had Malcolm X not been assassinated. I mean, the mind boggles. And the story of the aftermath is so tragic. Betty Shabazz ended up looking after her grandson, named after Malcolm X, it was Malcolm. Poor Malcolm ended up inadvertently killing his grandmother. He set their home on fire, and Betty Shabazz died of her burns three weeks later. And grandson Malcolm ended up getting shot in Mexico City in some sort of botched robbery or something at the age of 29 or 30. So just a a, a tragic aftermath to the whole family. But, of course, the legacy is unassailable. It feels to me, Katie, like one of those subjects where our listeners, as well as us, are going to jump off into various other Books and podcasts and stories about Malcolm yeah. X. And maybe we should start off with some of Peniel's own work. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And incredible how so many topics of our series are intertwined. For instance, uh, Cassius Clay and Malcolm X's paths intertwine and it's Cassius Clay and the, the Sonny Liston fight. So it's it's like history is ramping up faster and faster and the, the pages of the calendar are, are flying off in the wind more and more quickly. Yeah, absolutely. And Malcolm X, of course, also met NASA, who's been a previous topic on fire. Oh, yeah, yeah. He spent some time with Castro. He called out US imperialism in the Congo, which was one of our big episodes, you remember. Yep. So he is a link through so many other parts of our podcast as well. 
Tom, I have a message for you from a listener. Oh. Yep. A few weeks ago, we spoke about a Peter O'Toole amateur cricket match because a listener called Claire got in touch and told us her dad was an England cricket captain and played with Peter O'Toole. You, of course, were frothing yes. to know who her dad was. And quite amenably, she's been in touch again. She says, oh. let Tom know. In the spirit of James Bond, I could tell him who my dad was, but then I'd have to kill him. What? I find that a little unsatisfying, Claire. A little unsatisfying. Casey, what we shouldn't tell Claire is that I have spent some time researching this, trying to find out. I'm going to end that research now. <laughs> if you would like to get in touch on a similar topic or with a story or a guest idea, you can contact us on email at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk or on social media. We are at Spread That Fire on both Instagram and Twitter. And Casey, people should very much make sure they check out our marvellous merch collection at spreadthatfire.com. And shoppers, after you buy a bunch of merch, you can turn yourself into listeners because <laughs> next week the episode is British Politician Sex. And Tom, is there any other kind? <laughs> Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three 
I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved.